You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace be upon you all. Welcome once again in Drive Time Show in Voice of Islam Radio. We have uh, today uh, in the studio Mr. Dr. Tariq Bajwa and another team member, Sirjil Ahmed, and myself, Anik Rahman, will be presenting the very important topic today, which very much needed nowadays. And uh, I think that we need right now to bring peace in the world. And the topic, clears us off, is basically world and inner peace. So, the topic which we are going to cover today, indeed it's a topic which is needed very much and need to be discussed again and again and a very low level to very high level and discuss thoroughly and try to explain to, to the society and society need to come up with this that they have to discuss with the leaders and leaders to discuss to bring a true peace within the world. So without peace, it is not possible that we can have an inner peace. So both these things are very much integrated and very much linked. And without having an inner peace, we cannot have a peace in the world. And if there's no peace in the world, definitely it will impact us. And somehow we will be in distress and our inner peace will get destroyed. So I will go with to Dr. Tariq Bajwa to discuss this topic further. Of course, uh, Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you and uh, all our listeners as well. Um, uh, and we are uh, um, talking about the peace, peace. Um, quite a wide topic, but uh, we will be um, talking about inner peace as well as uh, peace in the world, which is which is quite important. And um, you can come along and talk to us if you want to. Our phone number is 0208-687-7878. And also you can tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Now, what's the definition of peace? Uh, one definition, of course, is the absence of agitation, absence of anxiety, absence of worries um, in one's desires. It's called peace. Um, if you are worried about something, of course, you are not at peace. And could this worry couldn't be anything. It could be just because um, you're not well, uh, you're suffering from something, or some, some of your dear ones is suffering. Mm. Or you are worried about that your car is standing outside, maybe somebody is going to scratch it. You are not at peace. The peace of mind means that physically as well as uh, emotionally, you are at peace. You are peace within yourself and you are peace from the society around you and of course the society is built up by, by the nations and the nations uh, obviously uh, that is what makes the world so uh, the, the peace is both sides from inside out and from outside towards inside so the Arabic, the Arabic word Islam means peace which comes from, uh, of course, it's uh, Allah's attribute. It's called As-Salam. As-Salam is the one who is at peace and he who provides peace, uh, who is the ultimate source of peace. It's, it's Allah, the, the creator, God, who has made us 
and uh, one of his attributes is assalam and that is also uh, a glad tiding for everyone that he is assalam because he is the one who can provide peace and uh, also is is he has mentioned in the holy quran that if you want peace then there is one way to get it and that he has described as allah bi zikrillahi tatmainul qulub that if you remember god almighty if you keep god almighty in your heart at all times you will remain at peace islam of course lays the foundation for peace at every level of society including the relationship between nations until we can establish complete faith in the existence of god at the individual level and uh, as a society we cannot fulfill the aim of having inner peace as well as peace in the world in the holy quran has valuable teachings regarding world peace however one remains in need of seeing the example of those who follow these teachings and uh, an excellent implementation of these teachings has been established by our uh, beloved holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him for the world to learn from him but of course he is the example he is the model as allah has uh, himself said in the holy quran verily you have in the prophet of allah an excellent model for him who uh, fears allah and the last day and who remembers allah much that's from chapter 33 verse 22 So today we are going to discuss in details and we've got quite a few lineup of our uh, uh, guests who will be speaking to us on this topic on the various aspects of this topic and uh, of course we've got uh, our Imam Sharjeel as well uh, who is uh, online today is not in the studio but he will also be speaking uh, uh, to on on this topic with us as well So um Now uh, we will go to our first guest and uh, before going to our guest I would like to uh, speak with uh, Mr. Sajil. Would you like to uh, discuss this topic further as you know we know uh, we are very much in, in lack of peace in the world and there's a chaos and uh, there's so much going on in the world and we need to discuss uh, it's so, so so we can uh, you know uh, convey the message to to our listeners that what islam teaches about the peace and how islam beautifully tells us that what are the ways to to have peace within the society within your your inner self so sajil would you like to say something yeah it's just uh, i mean thank you for uh, for the introduction as well it's the, i mean the the need as you have just uh, the for for peace is very very much important and this is the reason why why you know the, the United Nations actually decided that today will be the day for international day of peace and if all of these things are important for for us so that we can come together we can hold these events and uh, you know in, in a world of diversity uh, it becomes our duty to increase you know simple things they they may seem as simple but they go very far such as you know they can increase our love for each other our respect for one another the acceptance that we have for Just one another and all of these things are you know all of these things naturally lead to unity and then we can say unity in diversity because let's face it the world is in a diverse 
we live in a diverse, you know, multicultural society. We, if we establish unity in that, if we establish this love, if we establish respect, if we establish uh, this acceptance for one another, for one another, that will bring us together. And Islam is a religion of peace. Many people may be unaware, but the actual, the literal meaning of Islam is actually peace as well. So th- there is no need to feel worried or anxious. Um, you know, if if someone actually comes to any comes to the mosque or comes to a, in a gathering where Muslims are, there's no need for people to be you know scared or anxious because of that as well. And as you mentioned before as well, the Holy Quran states that one of the attributes of God Almighty is as salam, which means that He is the source of peace. So, if God truly is the source of peace, then His peace should encompass all of His creation and, of course, of all of mankind. And then it becomes our responsibility as Muslims to spread that peace far and wide as well. Thank so, you, you know, uh, Imam Shadil. We, we have got our first guest uh, today, who is uh, uh, Imam Sayyid Adil Ahmed. Uh, he is our missionary in Dallas, USA, and he is with us online. Uh, we'll uh, welcome him, uh, Imam Sayyid Adil. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you. Assalamualaikum. Wa alaikum peace be on you. We, we were uh, we got worried for a second that <laughs> you were not there. Uh, thank you for joining us today. So uh, we're talking about peace, and uh, there are many people who have no inner peace. What does Islam say about that? So basically, the, the you know the the entire purpose of Islam essentially is to create inner peace inside of an individual. And uh, basically everything that we do, all the commandments that we are to follow, the remembrance of Allah Almighty that we are supposed to do throughout our lives, it is there to, one, worship Allah Almighty because He deserves our worship um, and our and our attention. And secondly, so that we can remove all the anxieties and the frustrations and the difficulties that come our way throughout our lives by basically mm-hmm. detaching ourselves from them, by attaching ourselves to uh, to Allah Almighty. So, you know, as we say uh, that Islam means peace, uh, but the other meaning of Islam is also submission. These are the two meanings that we give. So Islam means peace and submission. So a Muslim would be someone who has created peace in their lives, and they are someone who has submitted themselves, particularly to Allah Almighty. So the one line that you would give, is that the purpose of Islam is to create peace through submission to Allah Almighty. And that has both connotations to uh, the individual, like in, in, in their own personal life, and then uh, outward as well, that because you have established certain of peace inside of yourself, it now spreads out to the people that are around you, and, and spread it to your families, your neighbors, your, your friends, and, and your relatives as well, and they partake in that peace that you have made inside of yourself. So through the worship of Allah Almighty, by remembering God Almighty, by kind of detaching ourselves from our egos and our and our arrogance and realizing that only Allah, only God Almighty is what is superior to all of us, then mm-hmm. that creates, you know, a certain relaxation inside of us. Indeed. So what do you think how much more important is to believe in God in order to mm-hmm. attain the inner peace? Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. I think if if uh, somebody truly wants to uh, be at rest, as the Holy Quran uh, mentions, uh, then uh, tapping into Allah Almighty and developing a relationship with Him is their ticket. 
to, to sort of that final uh, resting place or a final peace in their, in their heart and their mind. And as we go throughout our lives, we try to find peace in, in different things. So Hazrat Muslim, the second Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he mentioned something really interesting that when a, you know, when a, when a child is born into this world, even that, uh, you know, uh, uh, two, three, four month year old, one year old, when they're grabbing at things and breaking them and, and throwing them around or putting them in their mouth or whatever, they're, they're grabbing them, then they're actually trying to find God Almighty. Everything that we do uh, throughout our lives, whether we're trying to listen to music, we're watching a movie, we're eating uh, some food, we're traveling somewhere, it is actually us trying to find God. We're trying to find that ultimate source of peace. And we keep on grabbing at one thing after another that maybe this thing is going to give me uh, a final sense of peace. Maybe this thing will give me that, that permanent feeling that it's okay. Uh, but those things are limited. Those are objects at the end of the day. So we're going to use it, we're going to get bored with it, and then we're going to move on to the next one. This is why uh, you know, society just turns out more movies and then more music because it, it doesn't satisfy us fully. Mm-hmm. And we keep on traveling and, and, and indulging. And those are not bad, but they're not that final so- source of peace. Because those things are temporary, our, our soul knows that. And when it hits that reality that these things are just not forever, then it bothers us. But we believe Allah Almighty, God Almighty, to be everlasting. He's beyond time. He's beyond space. Uh, you know, He never uh, goes away. He never perishes. He'll always be there. And He's eternal. So that's something that we can grab onto and forever hold on to because He Himself is forever. So that permanent peace that we look for um, in actuality, it, w- it will only be found in Allah Almighty because He is the only thing that is permanent and everlasting in the first mm. place. True. Um, you know, when we discuss or when we dig more in Islam, the Quran basically gives us <coughs> the conduct of life. So, as mm. we know, the Quran describes the journey towards peace starting from your family. Can you please mm-hmm. elaborate more on that? Yeah, yeah, that's a uh, very important. Uh, very crucial as well. As you mentioned, the Holy Quran says, Allah Almighty says that He has created uh, man and woman from one soul, from one soul, and then from that soul He spread many other generations, meaning, uh, you know, essentially the family structure. Uh, man and woman come to marriage and then they have progeny, and this happens on a, on a multiple level throughout society and, and generations, um, generations carry forward. And and for this, you know, just just to kind of go a bit a bit deep into it. Um, again, as a Muslim, the second Khalifa of, of Islam, of, of, of the Amdi Muslim community, explains that mm. our soul is always in search of, of, of God Almighty. Uh, you know, again, as I said, we're always looking for Him throughout our lives, and you know, we're misguided in trying to find Him in different things. And, and He says that, look, as a man and as a woman, their souls are limited in nature. Why? Because my soul is stuck in this male body. And I only have a limited way through which I can experience God Almighty. Um, and same thing for a woman as well. For a female, her soul is in her body. When a woman actually come into a union, then, you know, has now access to sort of the males. And, you know, in that union, the soul can be sort of you know, full. It can have its other 50%. So when you're completed, now you can fully tap into Allah Almighty. Your soul is now complete, and that will enable you to remember Allah Almighty more. True. And uh, secondly, you know, having a family life opens up so many doors of blessings for you. You have people there in your house 
instead of going out there and searching whose life can you make better, you have somebody there right in your home, your your, your spouse, your you know children, however many, or even your grandchildren. So many blessings of Allah Almighty, of God Almighty, that you can have just by serving them. So you create that peace at that very small uh, local level because that's in your immediate access. We all have dreams and ambitions of fixing the world and we want to uh, do this at a global level and revolutionize this and that. But every single day there's a handful of individuals that we can change their lives and, and that's our family. So if we start at that level and you know, in that small sort of circle, we create that peace and everyone who has a family realizes that responsibility then instead of us sort of, you know, so supremely thinking that how things are going to change in the world, we just bring the responsibility down to the local level, to the family level, and everybody plays their part, then that spreads out. Indeed, indeed. So do you think uh, a lack of respect for the religion in the world is preventing world peace? Um, I think so. I think so. Mm. Um, you know, as, as I've been saying, uh, if I equate uh, lack of respect to religion, lack of uh, recognition of Allah Almighty, then yes, um, you know, th- th- that would be true. Because, again, we have to tap into what is permanent. Mm-hmm. And as a Rabbi, the, the fourth Khalifa, uh, you know, what I've been mentioning about this permanence, he, he was saying this uh, in one of his Friday sermons as well. He was discussing this inner peace about why the Western world, you know, apparently has all the gadgets and gizmos of the world, but... Um, you know, back then in, ni- in 1991, he's mentioning how rates of anxiety and depression are rising. Um, and that was uh, almost 30 years ago, which is now even more true. I mean, we, we see that uh, the sales of, of uh, you know, the, the market for depression increases in the millions um, every year. It's, it's just sort of a, a sad reality. Um, and that's, again, because they are chasing after temporary things. And they make, uh, you know, one advancement, one invention makes us feel good. But then we get bored. We want to move on to something else because there's another problem that we that we have to fix and that we have to try to find uh, a solution for. So, uh, and now what's interesting as well is that, you know, the, the market that is there for human self-improvement, it is now basically borrowing things from religion to uh, answer this need that we have to feel peace in our lives. So things like meditation, things like mindfulness, these are now on the rise. Mm-hmm. These themselves have become multi-million dollar markets because they are, you know, the, the, they recognize those who are, you know, a bit more uh, uh, looking into society and, and, and looking at how, where the larger trend is going. Uh, they're taking, you know, in, in a very sad way, it's sad to say this, but they're basically taking advantage of people's restlessness inside of their hearts and telling that, uh, you know, meditate and, and, and be mindful and, and have these other various uh, practices as well. So even though there might be not an overall respect of religion, they're beginning to borrow from religion and do the same thing that basically prayer uh, does, and they're beginning to replicate it in their own way. Uh, okay, Imam Adil, just one last question. If Islam truly is a religion of peace and justice, then how is it that the concept of warfare and jihad becomes associated with the Muslims? Yeah, I mean, th- that's a more historical situation where in the early days of Islam, uh, warfare and battle was, um, you know, it, it, it was uh, an intrinsic part. It is an intrinsic part of Islamic history because the early Muslims had to fight defensive battles as they came under threat. And Islam is, is, is a religion of, of human nature. And it has guidance in there that takes into account all the realities 
of life. So yes, while the end goal is to remove warfare and create peace in pe- people's lives and societies, but it still understands that uh, you know a situation could come about in the world where uh, these difficulties uh, happen. So Allah Almighty and His guidance has been realistic with us and been straightforward that uh, there might be these occasions where these, these uh, unforeseen circumstances crop up and, and some warfare breaks out. So even in that situation, we have been given guidance that this is how to carry yourself so that when we fall into that situation, we are able to go towards to, to, towards peace. So part of peace is having it, but part of it is also trying to create it as well. I think that shows the power of Islam that when uh, a difficult situation like that arises, if it has the solutions to move it away from that, then that shows its ability to create peace as well. And secondly, you know, because the Muslim world currently is, is in some geopolitical difficulties, and, uh, you know, unfortunately because of internal conflict, uh, it has, they haven't been able to uh, cope, progress themselves, then I think that, you know, unfortunately had a, had a lending hand in, in cementing that opinion and that feeling that people have, that it, it's just a faith that's associated with that. But Islam is perfect, and, and Muslims are not. And it is, in fact, because as a whole, they have moved away from the Islamic spirit. And that is what is creating a lack of peace in their society. Thank you very much, uh, Imam Sayyid Adil, all the way from Dallas. Uh, thank you for joining us, and I hope that our listeners have benefited out of your, our conversation today. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, a lot of... Uh, um, a sort of solid discussion about uh, peace and how is it associated with belief in God and uh, the teachings of Islam. The word Islam is peace, and if we act uh, or if we practice the true Islam, then it is going to bring peace into our lives uh, uh, because peace is what is desired by everyone. Maybe he's a whether he's a king or a prophet. Um, no, nobody is spared in this world with the with the troubles. But you see that when we see the people who are um, spiritually at a high status, you see them and you see that you know they they when you look at them, they seem to be at peace because they have committed themselves and they have submitted themselves totally to the will of God, and uh, um, that does not. Um, stop their progress. They just carry on and they ach- they achieve all the uh, high um, position and status in the world. And also, they they work on and the job which are given to them. So they carry on working them. And and there are some people who in this world they are also working uh, for the peace in this world. And uh, we have got our uh, uh, next guest who is. Diane Tate. Uh, she is a managing director of Peace Alliance, and uh, uh, let's speak to her. Uh, 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 hello, Diane. Um, thank you for coming on our show. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Right, Diane. Can you please tell our, our listeners about the Peace Alliance and its mission? Sure. Uh, the Peace Alliance um, is a unique nonprofit organization in that we are a C3 and a C4. So what that means is our C4 arm um, is uh, where we can do advocacy work 
uh, advocating for legislation in the United States government uh, for peace building policies. And then our C3 arm is um, is the, the part that most people associate with a typical nonprofit where we do um, education programs, um, educating people about peace building practices. So um, uh, it was created, we were created back in 2004 um, on the heels of a uh, the original uh, U.S. Department of Peace legislation mm-hmm. that was introduced by then representative Dennis Kucinich from Ohio in uh, 2001 was actually when he dropped that legislation and introduced it to the Congress for the first time in the modern era. And uh, the Peace Alliance was developed in 2004 to support that legislation and then to also uh, develop a, a broader base of support for peace building legislation and peace building practices throughout the nation and then throughout the world. So our mission is to empower civic action toward a culture of peace. So we want and believe that peace building is intentional, should be intentional, needs to be intentional Mm -hmm. uh, for all of us, um, certainly for our policymakers in our government, but also for everyday citizens who are we make a choice every day to decide to be peaceful in the way we behave and the way we stand up for others who need our support. Uh, so that's us in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> okay. no, that's correct. So in your opinion, what fosters peace in society and how can I become, uh, it can become an act of everyday life? Yeah, so I mentioned before, we believe peace is a choice that we make each mo- in each moment. So in a lot of ways, peace is, is not necessarily the goal, but rather the inevitable outcome when we choose to put intention behind creating infrastructures and systems to support the ability for each of us to build the peace we need to see for ourselves and that we want to see for our neighbors. So it's very much about intentionality. So if we were to create a Department of Peace in the United States government, um, there's also a uh, resolution in front of the United Nations Mm -hmm. asking all of the nations that participate in the UN to create departments or ministries of peace within their own governments. Costa Rica is the first country that has done this successfully. Um, because we believe that if we put the intentionality behind it, if there are systems and infrastructures in place in, in our, our governments, um, that we can then insert the belief for peace in every conversation that we have with regard to policy. We can examine what our policies and who our policies are really meant to, uh, support and uplift and amplify. And then we can take steps to change those things if we find that what we're putting out into the world is not actually creating peace, but is actually doing harm. Um, True. So so it's not just an end result. It's not just something that when we get there, it's like, oh, okay, now everybody can be happy and and peace is done. Um, it's something that will be ongoing, we believe. True. So how, what do you think, how do we wage peace uh, with the same intensity we wage war? Yeah, so this is a really great question. Um, and 
and I know that it's it's hard to make that statement without using language that we typically associate mm. with war. <laughs> yeah. uh, wage peace, we fight for peace, or fight. You know, there a lot of our a lot of our words that we use in day to day life when we talk about this kind of thing are actually military or war related mm. uh, verbs. So it's difficult. But what 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 that means for me and for the Peace Alliance is. We need to be intentional about what we're doing, and we need to back it with the same amount of energy that those who support the war systems, the military-industrial complex, because we all know that war is a very lucrative um, endeavor, and there's a lot of money to be made, Not certainly not by the people who are being impacted by the war, but by those who are um, making money off of the war itself. Um, and so we need to, those of us who want to see that change, need to become as uh, action-oriented and intentional, I know I keep using that word, but it's mm-hmm. a good one, um, to, to really, we can't be passive and just hope that war is going to go away if we just talk enough about how war is painful. If we really cared as a society, if we really cared that war caused harm, and we really care to stop that harm, it would have stopped a long time ago. Uh, the United States would not have been born out of harm <laughs> and violence. <laughs> I mean, that's how this country was founded and continues to operate today. Um, so we have, as a society, not just in this country, but across the world, we really do have a, a very deep investment in war. Um, we have a deep investment in harm and violence. Mm. And we have to make a choice to invest in dismantling that compulsion. Um, uh, the, the investment in dismantling that compulsion needs to be as deep and as full of energy as the compulsion to continue to cause harm and to dominate. Mm-hmm. And that's the shift that we believe has to happen Indeed. before we can really make a change here. Indeed, indeed. So what do you think, how can we instill the idea of peace in the young minds, especially of children, especially and uh, you know how we can or they can practice it in the school to to you know to understand the true concept of peace and how they can speak up for that right right well we all know that it starts with the children right i mean there's i don't believe there's a baby born mm-hmm. um anywhere that comes into the world believing in violence and believing in true. uh causing harm to others they're taught that and so if they can be taught to be violent toward others, they can be taught to be compassionate toward others. They can be taught to be um, to have empathy toward others. But it's similar to what I was saying about we have to put the same energy behind creating structures of peace as we do behind creating structures of war. We have to be as intentional behind teaching children how to be peaceful and compassionate and full of empathy for others as we do teaching them to be dominant and uh, to have more than others have, or I can't have what I want unless you are pushed down. You know, that that um, we do it in our school systems with grades. You know, we, mm-hmm. we create competitions within the students. Who's got the best grade? Who's the top of the class? And, and on the surface, it may look like, well, you're motivating them to reach for higher goals. Okay, mm-hmm. but you're also you're also secondarily teaching them that, they need to claw their way to that top, and sometimes that means stepping on others to get there. That's the point that 
we need to teach them something different that a float a, you know a high tide floats all boats right it it can amplify everyone that it's not a zero sum that me rising to a level of success or peace does not mean i have to push you down to get there this this kind of teaching can be implemented in our schools if we choose to do that um, the Peace Alliance has a 10-hour audio course right now called Practicing Peace in Schools. Mm-hmm. And each hour is, is recorded by a subject matter expert in different ways of, in, of instilling and teaching mindfulness and empathy and compassion into our students in their day-to-day life. And this course is intended for administrators, educators, and parents because it takes all of those elements to create an environment in a school that not only teaches children to be peaceful, but emulates it, models it. The The atmosphere of the school itself has to be peaceful in order for Indeed. the students to to learn it, right? So, yes. um, so it, it's not only what you teach them in the curriculum, but it's what you model. Children learn what they live. Indeed. So if they're if their schools were systems of peace, were systems of compassion, um, then they would be, then that level of, of empathy for others would be embedded in them from the get-go before they even realized what they were being taught, um, which is a, in a lot of ways what we're doing now. We're teaching them about violence and harm. You know, we're teaching it to them subconsciously based on the, the environment of our schools. True. So. So, you know, uh, if we discuss further regarding, you know, the restorative justice practice, uh, what do you think? How successful has that been? Well, I, I don't, I, it's been very successful. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I don't have data in front of me right mm-hmm. now to spout off numbers. Um, but there are many school systems that have seen uh, uh, significant decreases in violence um, between the students, violence between the students and their and their teachers and i'm not just talking about physical violence right that's another piece of this that i think is really important and that the peace alliance tries to engage people in dialogue about violence can be whispers right violence can be violence can be in many forms it's not just physical so bullying is a form of violence mm-hmm. um uh teachers making fun of their students in front of the class to try to motivate them to do better is a form of violence. Having police officers with guns on their hips in our schools, especially in the United States, I can't necessarily speak to across the world, but in the United States, having police officers, armed police officers in our schools, roaming the halls as if the students were in a police state instead of a school is violent. And mm-hmm. so restorative justice practices, there are, it's a wide title, um, but it encompasses these kinds of changes. It encompasses teaching students how to speak to each other in conflict, how to, how to de-escalate conflict between themselves, how to de-escalate conflict within the classroom setting. It, it, it would teach how to de-escalate conflict between the teachers and the administrators, between the teachers and the parents. There are so many different relationships that happen in school systems, mm-hmm. and restorative justice concepts are about restoring the justice to the dialogue, restoring the compassion, restoring the empathy toward each other. You can still, you're going to disagree. You're going to have differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. You're even going to have, um, you know, people's feelings are going to get hurt in different circumstances, but what do you do with that afterwards? You know, what do you do to rectify that situation? Do you 
silence the person that was injured and tell them that their harm is not valid? Or do you give them space to speak into the harm that, that, was, that they felt that was caused to them and, and truly listen with an empathetic ear uh, to that harm, even if you don't see the harm this, through the same perspective? Um, these are all skills that we can teach our children, and this is all part of a restorative justice practice uh, within a school system. Great, great. So, you know, last question. So what inspired you to work with organization that helps save children in different ways? Yeah, so I, I got bit by the bug, as I call it, uh, very early. My mom was on the board of directors of a preschool in, um, in, in, the, in the town that I grew up in that served um, children with disabilities. And so I very early on would go to the school with her when she would go to meetings and I would go into the classroom and play with the kids. And as I got older, I realized I wanted to be in that environment. I wanted to help. So I started volunteering with the teacher as the teacher's aide and then ended up going to uh, college, getting my undergraduate degree in special education. Um, I believe that children are the bedrock of what we of, of a society, if we want to transform our society, not only do we need to communicate with our adults about the importance of, you know, it's the adult's job to put the infrastructures in place. It's the adult's job to say, we are going to be intentional about doing this differently, but it's the children that we need to keep in mind when we're making these decisions. Yeah, thank you. If, it's, if we're talking about environmental ju- justice um, or any kind of justice, children are the, that, that's where the biggest change can happen. Thank you very much for joining us today. Indeed, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Have a nice Thank evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, uh, we're going to listen to the audio clip of the President Khalif, the head of the Muslim Associa- MDM Muslim Association worldwide. I think we have our next guest just, uh, with okay, us, okay, so, we'll, so uh, we'll speak to him and then I think we'll li- listen to the audio Definitely, clip. Yes. We've got uh, Sir Iftikhar Ayaz. He is, uh, he's, uh, uh, his Excellency uh, has been Tualu's honorary consul in the UK since 1996 and has been designated as Tuvalu's High Commissioner to the Commonwealth and Ambassador to the United Nations Human Rights Council. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, peace be on you, uh, Sir Iftikhar Yaz. Thank you for coming and joining us today. Wa alaikum assalam. It's always a delight joining your program and thank you for having me today. Thank you very much. So you have been dedicated to serving humanity throughout your life. What makes your, you passionate about this work? Well, basically, you see, right from my childhood, I was brought up uh, in an environment uh, where I uh, was confronted and I observed a lot of poverty and suffering. First, it was rural Africa. And, uh, you know, the conditions, as far as life is concerned, were very tough. People had to walk miles and miles to get a bucket of water. There was shortage of food and disease and all that, you know. So that really uh, softened my heart and made me feel about why these people, being, you know, the creation of the same creator I was created by, why should they be suffering like this? And that really 
inculcated in my mind a love for humanity. And then, of course, later in my life, I worked for the UN Center on Integrated Rural Development for Africa. Right. And there I was responsible for the development of rural Africa, that is all the 52 countries of Africa. Right. And I traveled extensively in Africa during that period. And that made me more conscious of the problems humanity had. And then later on um, in my life, I had the opportunity to work in the Pacific, again an area which is infested with poverty and lots of problems, you know. But much more so, I would say that uh, my religion, my faith, teaches me that God Almighty has uh, given us responsibility for two main services. One is our obligations to God himself, and the other is our obligations to humanity itself. And in my religion as well, I see the history and the teachings and the practices are all targeted towards the betterment of humanity. And that betterment is a wholesome betterment. Humanity does not only need food and shelter and clothing. It also needs a mind. It also needs uh, a thinking and practices which can keep them closer to their creator. This is very important because just the amenities and the comforts of the material world are not enough for a person to enjoy a quality of life which gives the person the real comfort and the real peace and uh, uh, the real um, purpose of this life. So all those factors combined made me really feel very passionate about serving humanity. And fortunately, some of my jobs were actually directed towards raising the standards of living of uh, humanity. And later on in life, because I had qualifications in uh, uh, education and training for human development, I was actually involved at a high level trying to make plans and strategies and programs for the uplift of the standards of humanity in various countries, particularly in the Pacific. I was responsible for about 14, 15 island states where I was actually involved in trying to lift the standards of economy, standards of education, standards of health, etc. And I think as a human being, every human being, every human being cannot be addressed, and I don't think should be addressed until and unless our fellow human beings are addressed. What we have, others must have as that. You know, my faith also teaches me that uh, I should make sure 
that what I like for myself, I should also like for others. So basically, if I am enjoying a comfortable life, I have a shelter, clothing, and food, I could not relish it, or I would not, and I should not relish it until I see my fellow humans also have enough to eat, and they have uh, enough uh, uh, clothing and shelter. And actually, you see, I have been a very active participant in, in programs for the alleviation of poverty. Mm-hmm. And I have uh, visited some poverty camps, which is a horrible sight. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> when you uh, visit these places, uh, it, it's hard to control your emotions, you know. And yeah, uh, I've been to Sudan, for example, you know, visiting some poverty camps and other countries as well. Um, and now, of course, I'm involved with uh, asylum seekers and refugees uh, in various countries. And that's, again, um, uh, a, a scenario of human suffering in various ways. Yeah, so definitely. it is not only the material needs, but it is also the, the social needs. It is also the uh, spiritual needs. Uh, of the people which we have to fulfill as well. And I think one of the highest priorities of every human should be try to contribute the welfare of other human beings. And we can do it. It doesn't mean that we have to give a lot of time or we have to do this or do that. In our own environment, we can do a lot for that. For example, there are uh, homes for the poor there are centers for the elders, etc., who need lots of things. And what is most important, these people do not only need goods, they need company. They need people to talk to them. And I can tell you that even if they don't have much food, and if you sit with them and you talk to them about the Creator, about religion, about faith, about this world, they feel much, much more comfortable than they would with a piece of bread or something of that sort. Thank so you very much, uh, Sarayas. Uh, sorry to... Uh, we, uh, As we are speaking about peace, our topic today is peace, I would like to know something more about uh, that side of things, looking at the current state of world affairs. What would be the best strategy to have world peace, in your opinion? Well, you see, peace, generally when people talk about peace, they talk about political peace. You see, they do not want to see wars like uh, the Russian-Ukraine war or the wars that we have seen in the world itself, the First World War, the Second World War, and then, of course, uh, the smaller battles and wars as we have seen uh, in, the, in, the, in the Middle East happening in the 90s, etc. So that political peace is, of course, important. But there, you know, the uh, human failures actually actually play a very, very uh, heinous part in destroying the political peace. And as we know, uh, the main cause when you look at these conflicts is uh, the uh, yearning for power being, uh, uh, being uh, uh, competitive, in trying to achieve a, a higher status on the world forum, etc., etc., those things are there. 
And there again, it is um, a, a failure uh, of uh, the people as well, because uh, in the people itself, you have people who try to divide the societies, who divide the communities, who create uh, religious rivalries and re religious enmities. The other day, um, this is personal, but I'm, 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 I'm pleased to share with you, last Sunday, um, just after the death of uh, our Queen Elizabeth, the, the new king, King Charles III, he invited me and my wife for a meeting. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to him, we talked about climate change and environment, sustainability, etc. But then when we talked about our present world, and I told him, I said, well, unless we have freedom of religion, we cannot resolve or solve the causes of all these conflicts that we have. So I think freedom of religion is a very fundamental root for growing and creating peace in the world. This is very, very important. And you know, all the religions, A to Z, every religion talks about peace, and they claim to be, you know, the providers, the bestowers of peace. But in my religion, you know, God Almighty has given uh, a very, very uh, clear indication uh, where the peace is. I, I, I remember um, that uh, verse of the Holy Quran. Um, I don't need to uh, recite it in Arabic, but what it really means is that uh, Allah, of course, is one God, you know, and there is no associate for the God. But what God says in the Holy Quran is that He is the sovereign. Now, I mean, these are very notable uh, statements. Allah says He is the sovereign. It is not those people who are on this earth. If they are there, it is Allah who has given them that responsibility. They are there to serve humanity in that capacity. But the real sovereign is Allah himself, God himself. And then God says that he is, God is the source of peace. Mm -hmm. Now this is something very, very important. No people on this world can actually establish lasting peace. If there is peace, and we know history, there, has, there have been periods of political peace. You know, we now had a very long period without a, a big world war. But those periods of peace are very short-lived. The real source of peace is God himself. And the only way to get that lasting peace is being connected with God himself, with the Creator. We're not saying that, okay, you have to be a Muslim to enjoy peace. What we are saying is, whatever your faith, whatever it is, you have to be connected with the Creator who created you and have the belief, you know, and, and uh, uh, you, you have to be absolutely confident and sure that if there is going to be any peace, it is going to come from our Creator, from God Himself. And not only that, you know, God Almighty also says that He 
is the provider of uh, security. He is the provider of security, and he is also the protector. So those are very, very, very important uh, statements that we have from the Holy Quran. We need protection for peace. We need security for peace. We need peace itself. And then we must remember that external peace is, of course, important. We need peace in our environment. We need peace in our atmosphere. We need peace in our house as well. But most importantly, peace cannot really flow out into these areas, into these arenas, unless and until there is peace in one's mind and heart. So inner peace is extremely important. And that inner peace cannot be just created or cannot just be imposed or implanted. It has to come from the Creator. So the bottom line is the people of this world must follow the rules of tolerance, must follow the rules of giving respect and dignity to other fellow humans on this planet. And they should have such a connection with the Creator that the Creator is kind and good and compassionate to give them that peace which will become the root of the peace in their home, in their society, in their environment, in their neighborhood, and we should be able to live in an atmosphere which is peaceful. Why we have these wars? This is just mere trying to show the other people that someone is more powerful than the other, or trying to exploit people. We had slavery, we still have slavery, we have lots of issues where human beings are exploiting other human beings. And this exploitation absolutely destroys peace. There is nothing left of peace unless this exploitation is there. And, and the, and the okay, sorry, uh, sorry, Ayaz, we will have to stop there because we are running short of time. We're getting to the news. Thank you very much for joining us. I, I hope everybody has enjoyed your, your talk. It was very inspiring. Thank you. And Thank uh, you. we go to the Thank news you. now. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace be upon all of the listeners. Welcome back after the short news. News Now, once again, we will discuss the topic which we were discussing in the first hour of this drive time show, which is uh, based on world and inner peace. To understand the inner peace, we need to understand that it starts with an individual. And as a seed grows and the peace grows to family and into the society, and indeed, at the end, it contributes to international peace. And if we are not working on our inner peace, we are not bringing a true change, we are not following the ways which we have been told by the uh, by which is you know taught by religion that how one should have inner peace and if we are not doing of course what happens at the end we won't have the peace in the society the fourth caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association Hazrat Khalifatul Masih Rabi Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmad Sahib 
has discussed that he said that submission to the will of God is the first mean of attaining peace. He says that to initiate the process of establishing peace, the first step is within our own hearts and thoughts. One must have qalbe salim, you know, the right heart, a true intention of the heart, a sound of a secure heart, that was actually means, or a heart at peace. So this is only achieved when the soul has surrendered to a loving and beloved God. And the second mean, he said, the second is truthfulness. To have an inner peace, it is very important that one should have a truthfulness. He says there will always be a contradiction between man and his soul as long as it is not valid. So truth is the most important fundamental next step towards peace. Our present Khalif explained uh, in the Friday sermon, he says that taqwa, which is righteousness, is attained when the truth is upheld in every situation, in times of difficulty or ease, be it be when arriving at a decision, when in a decision-making capacity, or at home with the wife and children. In daily matters, everything should be completely truthful and without ambiguity. We should not lead others to random interpretations. Falsification lowers the standard of taqwa. So the falsification lowers the standard of righteousness and distance one from God. True believers stay firm on qale sadid, which is which means the right word. So it is very important that first of all we should submit ourselves to God Almighty to attain inner peace to become a person who is peaceful and secondly is to have this attribute of speaking truth whatever we do in our life we should always follow the path the the, the, the path of truthfulness now i will go to dr tariq pajwa to discuss this further yeah i think um, as you mentioned earlier that the uh, the inner peace is required and that's where it spreads out to the families and from the families to the society and from the society to, to the world peace. And basically that's the purpose that uh, uh, that we live in a society where there is peace mm -hmm. and, and ultimately we are able to create world peace. And one cannot talk about world peace without the ultimate guidance of the Holy Prophet's uh, life. Uh, and how beautifully he implemented Quranic teachings. Mm. All his noble life is a witness to the fact that he championed peace throughout and despite all odds and challenges, he proved that peace can only be established in the world by following Quranic teachings. Both phases of his life in Mecca and in Medina, oh, uh, they, it is full of examples of how he turned his followers into champions of peace and one example which is you know m widely accepted as well is the treaty mm. of Hudaybiya uh, it's an excellent example where apparently weak conditions were accepted as part of the treaty but Allah turned it into a clear victory the holy prophet prophet Muhammad may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him he never took the initiative to attack his enemy without a prior provocation when he was attacked first by others he would resort to prayer and only under divine instruction would he go for a defensive battle. And that too, only until the enemy's transgression was put to an end. 
the Holy Quran of obviously has guided and it says in chapter 4 verse uh, in chapter 22 verse 40 the permission to fight is given to those against whom war is made because they have been wronged and Allah indeed has a power to help them again Allah says that um, Sulhu Khair, that's from chapter 4, verse 129, which means that and reconciliation is best. And the Holy Quran has uh, given three golden principles for establishing uh, lasting peace. Um, and, and that, of course, is uh, at the world level as well, uh, applicable. And it says, verily, Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good to others and giving like kindred that's from chapter 6 16 verse 91 and we do have our uh, next guest uh, call on on online is uh, Kirsten Bays she is a uh, lead uh, local outreach coordinator campaign against arms trade cat vice chair of nuclear information service which provides information and analysis about the UK's nuclear weapons um, thank you very much. Uh, th uh, welcome, uh, Kirsten. Uh, thank you for having me on. Very pleasure to join you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, joining us uh, on this afternoon. Are we, as as you are aware, we are talking about uh, peace, and peace is obviously related to uh, to to your uh, organisations. So many people um, say that strong defence is needed for peace. Do you agree to that? Well, I think when you, you when they say that, um, I think you need to interrogate what they're actually saying. Um, what they what people often mean by the, those remarks is that military power and military spending they think leads leads to peace. And yet, if you look at some recent examples over the last say ten years of of, of military power, I mean, for example, or even the last twenty years, for example, Saddam Hussein's. Uh, Iraq was militarily very powerful, but it's hard to say that that country's experienced peace over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think uh, Libya under, under Gaddafi, again, was one of the major sort of military powers of North Africa, um, but it's hard to say that that country's experienced peace. And similarly, when you look at uh, Afghanistan, where, where, you know, the, the IEA, the, uh, the, the, the Taliban, uh, Haqqani forces are, are militarily, you know, very powerful that they've driven driven out the americans and the british um again you know you'd have to say that 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 country is a long way from experiencing peace so i don't think peace is just a matter of of of, of should we say defense or military spending i think it is as much uh due to uh people working together with via trade via sort of international links um kind of having a, a common system of things like human rights and and international relationships and and it's that that actually creates peace um i think the military stuff is you know it it it's a bit of a red herring it 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 creates as much war as it as it does the other thing so why do you think the nuclear arsenals are increasing despite the known risks well it was interesting i was listening to uh, uh rebecca from um uh, ICANN, who, who's, who's a, a well-known observer, she, she spent uh, a large chunk of time uh, at the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty uh, meetings uh, last month, which were in, in New York. And I think what you'd say is, is, is nuclear weapons are, are, are an article of faith um, for many of the people that hold them. They, they, they believe, uh, rightly or wrongly, that you know, nuclear weapons promote peace and that... Um, mm. 
that having vast arsenals of, of, of destructive weapons that essentially can kill tens of thousands of people at a, at a stroke is, 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 is part, of, part of a peaceful structure. I, personally, I don't believe that. I think uh, huge, nuclear weapons are hugely dangerous. But it has to be said that, you know, the, the nuclear uh, possessing powers, they love their weapons. They, they want to keep them. And mm -hmm. to keep them, they need to continue to invest in them and create new ones. And I think that's the, the realistic thing that's, that answers your question. The, the reason nuclear weapons are increasing is because it serves the people in power. Uh, what it doesn't do is serve the people who, who might find themselves the target of those weapons. And, and that's, those are the people we need True. to be thinking about. True. Uh, you know, as a cat was nominated for 2021 Nobel Peace Prize alongside our partners, Matwana for Human Rights, IEMNI grassroots organization. So what does this mean for your campaign? Well, it, uh, we're huge admirers of um, Watana and um, during 2021, which was the, the period of the, the um, uh, nomination, you know, we, 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 we staged exhibitions, we, we held, held online seminars, you know, we spoke a lot about this. And for us, it was really important to kind of highlight their work and, and to say, and for them to be able to, to, to if you like, get a chance to, to, to reach new audiences. And it also helped us reach other audiences who perhaps we wouldn't normally talk to. You know, the, the Nobel Prize is, is so visible uh, and it's such a, a widely understood thing that it was great to be nominated, especially by such um, uh, wonderful uh, organizations as, as Craig Peace and Social Witness in the UK and, and uh, the, the corresponding organization in the United States. I mean, again, it was a huge honor to, 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 um, to, 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 to get that. And so, yeah, so we've maintained our relationship with Moatana this mm -hmm. year. Um, and, you know, we, we're happy to host uh, their chief executive uh, at, 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 at a talks and, and introduce them to, to parliamentarians. So it's been great. Yeah. So yeah. while every nation has the right and the need to ensure security in these changing times, why do you think arms requirements and procurements have not changed too? Well, I think as you, as you, when you, the, the accusation that, people often make against generals um, is that they fight the, the, old, the, the last war, you know, um, by which they, be, they, they tend to use tactics from the, the previous generation in the wars of this generation. And while I'm not sure that's especially true, what's also true is, you know, we have equipment that, that has its origin in the Cold War, you know, the, 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 the sort of um, face down between America and Britain and Europe versus the Russians in you know in the in the in the sort of 60s 70s and 80s so we still have equipment from that time nuclear weapons being an obvious example and then we've got uh, we still kept those so we're still paying for those and that, so we're still ordering more of them um, we have all the equipment that that was kind of bought and, and and acquired during the war on terror as as the Americans called it so all of those all of those helicopters and all the all the other stuff that, that kind of went along with that um, and we're still keeping those. And now we find ourselves in, a, in the next generation of warfare where you've got drones happening and, and, and all of this sort of surveillance stuff going on, all this electronic warfare. And again, we're buying some of that. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, that procurement is unchanging. What I would say is we keep buying the same old stuff and then adding new stuff to it. And that's why we spend so much money on weapons. So do you think rich countries themselves are often active in the largest forms of corruption within poor countries where aid and loan are being given to show support? 
yeah, and I, I think it takes uh, it takes many forms. You know, and different countries have different involvement. So, you know, it, it's quite well known that some countries give aid on the understanding that that aid is then used to purchase products from their industries or farmers. So that that's certainly true. Um, you know, we, we've also there's also been scandals around sort of aid agencies and and essentially their involvement in local crime, whether that's been drugs or uh, uh, the exploitation of, of people people trafficking. But I think what's also true from the, an arms trade perspective, you know, I'm really aware that uh, um, Andrew Feinstein, who's a, a, a well-known writer and commentator on on, on uh, the arms trade, he says that sort of 40% of world corruption is connected to arms trading. And given that sort of weapons exports, defense exports are, are around 5 five to 10% of, of, of global trade, that's a massive imbalance. And so for me, when you look at uh, an arms deal, I think it's almost inevitable that it's connected to corruption. And the reason it happens is because everybody gets rich from it. You know, the, the royal families of, of places like Saudi Arabia or Bahrain, you know, profit from these deals. You know, the arms companies do and their shareholders, you know, the, the middlemen, the agents in the middle, um, you know, all, all profit from it. The people who don't profit from it are the people who are the target of those weapons and, and the people from the countries where, where, where they're being shipped to, you know. Um, so, so that's actually what's going on. It's, it's, a, it's a big scam and everybody's taking their own, uh, uh, own sort of uh, pound note or, or dollar bill and it, it's impoverishing everybody else. So I think that's what's happening. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Kirsten, for joining us uh, this thank afternoon. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure so to nice, come on. Nice talking to, to you. Thank, thank you. you. All the best. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so that was uh, Kirsten Bayes from CATS, and uh, he's, he's talking about his point of view. Um, and uh, as you're aware, we are talking about peace, and I mentioned about the three basic principles which the Holy <coughs> Quran has given. Um, and these are uh, these are about uh, um, uh, the absolute justice, uh, being good to others, and and to treat others the way a mother treats a child. This is um, taken from the Holy Quran. It was mentioned by Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, who is the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, in his book World Crisis and the Pathway to Peace. And uh, he, he mentioned that in an address at Peace Symposium UK in 2019. Now, as regards justice, he said that Islam lays the foundation for peace at every level of society. And this includes the relationship between nations themselves. And if two parties of believers fight against each other, make peace between them, then if after that one of them transgresses against the other, Fight the party that transgresses until it returns to the command of Allah. Then if it returns, make peace between them with equity and act justly, really Allah loves the just. That, that's um, from chapter uh, 49, verse 10. And then the second part was being good to others. Uh, and that is whoever has three qualities has completed the faith, a sense of fairness, spending in charity despite difficult circumstances and offering peace to the world. That is a hadith, that's a tradition of the Holy Prophet. Uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And he said that uh, um, the Holy Prophet did not seek glory and nor did he seek vengeance against those who had tormented him and his followers. Rather, his response was to grant forgiveness to each and all alike. 
And the third is that that is the third stage that after doing a justice, being good to others, then you go to a third stage. And that is w- where, you know, there is there is no sort of vested interest. And, and as a mother behaves with a child, that she does not, um, uh, is, is not even expecting anything from the child, yet um, she does good to, to her child. Uh, and uh, uh, and that is what is mentioned as a third, that the Quran requires that Muslims strive to love others without any desire for reward, just as a mother selflessly loves her child. Furthermore, the Quran does not say that Muslims should treat only their fellow Muslims in this way. Rather, it says that they should love others, and this includes Muslims and non-Muslims as well. And um, a Christian author Karen Armstrong, um, she describes the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as a complex, passionate man who sometimes did things that were difficult to accept, but who had the genius of a profound order and founded a religion and a cultural tradition uh, that was not based on the sword, despite the Western myth and whose name Islam signifies peace and reconciliation that has been taken from a book she has written, uh, Muhammad, a Western attempt to understand Islam. So uh, the, the, the principle which has been given by the Holy Prophet, may peace be upon him, is choose for others what you choose for yourself. And that's yeah, just a very basic That's true. Answer. So now, you know, we're going to listen audio clip uh, to understand peace and the, why do we need peace uh, within the society. Now uh, I will be, you know, running a keynote address of uh, head of Amdiya Muslim Association, the uh, Khalif. So please uh, listen to it, inshallah, we'll discuss the discussion after that. What is peace and why do we need it? In my view, there are two types of peace. There is outward peace and inner peace. Often at a superficial level, people can appear to be happy and content. Yet, though they have outward peace, they remain bereft of inner peace. For example, powerful and influential people often speak about developing peace and they personally possess all the trappings and comforts of the world. Nevertheless, many admit that they remain in search of peace of mind and are consumed by tension and vexation. From a purely external and uh, material point of view, they have all that they need, yet their, uh, their minds remain plagued and by, uh, by anxiety and their hearts remain unfulfilled. Thus, the reality is that until a person attains inner peace, their material com- uh, comforts are worthless. Simply put the, uh, the, the one thing money cannot buy is inner peace. Now we're going to listen another audio of uh, the fourth caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association to understand more that why do we need peace within the world. Thank you. From an Islamic perspective, we should strive for the entire world to unite together. In terms of currency, the world should be united. In terms of free business and trade, 
the world should be united. And in terms of freedom of movement and immigration, cohesive and practical policies should be developed so that the world can become united. Consequently, the Islamic viewpoint is that peace can best be achieved through unity. Yet, regretfully, instead of uniting, we are seeking separation and prioritizing our individual interests over the collective interests of the world. I believe that such policies will and already are undermining the world's peace and security. According to Islam, for peace to prevail, justice between nations is a prerequisite. Where countries face difficulties, other nations should seek to help them selflessly without pushing their own agendas. For example, the Holy Quran states that if there is a war or conflict between two parties, other nations should mediate impartially and seek to bring about a peaceful settlement. However, if one side continues to be unjust and does not move towards peaceful outcome, then the other nations should unite together to stop the aggressor. Once the aggressive nations or party refrain from wrongdoing, Islam categorically instructs that revenge should not be sought through unjust sanctions or by plundering their resources. However, time and again, we have seen examples of countries that have intervened in war-torn nations or given aid to deprived countries on the pretext of bringing peace but have attached strings that enable them to take control of the weaker countries' resources. Rather than being content with their own wealth, powerful countries seek to assert their control over weaker nations. As I have said, the root cause of frustration and resulting hostility, whether in the East or the West, is economic injustice. And so it is essential that a concerted effort is made to bridge the economic divide amongst nations and their people. Furthermore, we must unite in our efforts to end all forms of extremism and prejudice, whether religious, racial, or of any other kind. Whether it is clear, uh, where it is clear that people are suffering and that their leaders are not protecting their rights, those international organizations founded for the sake of preserving the peace of the world, notably the United Nations, should exercise lawful and proportionate pressure in order to defend the rights of law-abiding citizens and to push for peace and justice. We just we were listening to the head of the Muslim Association, the fifth caliph. Now we will be moving to our next guest. We have Dr. Shakil with us. He is a sophologist. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace be upon you, Dr. Shakil Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Shakil. Are you there? 
You know, to put it into perspective, let's categorize mental health into three broad sections. Um, it will help people understand the, the answer better. So mental disorders can either be genetically transferred, so which means uh, moving from one generation to another, you inherit the predisposition of a mental illness. Then right. there is another type of uh, mental disorder, which is secondary to brain disease, which means that some kind of physiological or physical disease happens in the brain, like a road traffic accident trauma or other physical illness. Mm. But the third type of mental illness that's very relevant to your question is the stress-related mental disorders. So if we have continuous increased stress, and stress is part of life, as we know and understand, but if our coping skills are being overwhelmed by the stress that we experience, then the balance is disturbed and we are likely to go into reduced functionality and into the realm of what could be seen as mental disorder. Now, right. having understood this, let's look at what materialism does to us. The, um, the common English phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, it is uh, quite explanatory. It is about wanting more and then wanting more on top of it and more. So there is no sense of contentment or a satisfaction that one tends to achieve and your, your uh, excitement about having had something new runs out and then you want to live the same excitement once more. So more than the thing or the object itself, it's the psychological addiction to have more than what you already had is what you are seeking. Our system of economics, capitalism, this encourages materialism. This encourages this kind of stressful pursuit of more and more. In this system, the growth is monitored against benchmarks like um, interest rates or um, inflation. And what it allows, the system, is that the wealth is shifted from the poorer or the less well-off to the richer or the more well-off. And of course, if such a system is legalized and is continuing, then there's going to be increased stress in the society. There's going to be frustration amongst those who don't have enough, but they are also bombarded on the media with images of those who have a lot more than others. And this stress leads to a state where then they start feeling anxious or depressed, or in younger generations, they start breaching the norms or laws of the principles they've been taught, and therefore we see them as, in psychiatry, as conduct disorders or personality disorders. So in my opinion, this third category, the stress-related type of mental disorder, is a pretty direct consequence of this relentless, relentless materialism and reduced spirituality. Right, okay. Um... Yeah, that was a very comprehensive answer. Thank you for that. So in this fast-paced world, we must make time for ourselves and our thoughts. Does this help us or slow us down? 
Um, you know, this uh, pursuit that we have uh, described about wanting more and more, this is what determines the fast pace. And the faster the pace and the more um, unending it is, it is in fact adding to the psychological stress of the people. And that in return, as is well understood, reduces our productivity. Mm -hmm. In the same way, like in our physical uh, side of things, if we are uh, doing some physical task and we carry on doing it without having breaks, without resting or having adequate sleep, adequate meals in between, then we, we're going to become very exhausted and could become unwell physically. Now, the same principle applies to mental tasks and mental productivity. If there is no breaks, no opportunity to reflect or think how we are performing and how to improve our performance, then it is likely to lead to uh, reduced mental productivity rather than any improvement. And there is a third dimension to a human being besides the physical and mental. This is the intellectual or the spiritual dimension. And the same principle can apply to this third dimension too. So in fact, I think that breaking the fast pace cycle does not lead to reduction in productivity. In fact, it's about recharging yourself, creating a bit of mental space and improved uh, appraisals of our own uh, work and then improving on it. I, I, I remember the writings of a very famous British philosopher, Bertrand Russell, who lived um, in the turn of between the 19th and the 20th century, and he wrote an article uh, titled In Praise of Idleness. And he, his uh, suggestion was that the, his idea was that the labor for money has been very overvalued in Western society. So he went to the extreme of saying that, look, we need to reduce our work, we need to create more time for leisure and enjoy life. Now, we may not completely identify with that philosophy, but what we can identify with is that if we break our relentless pursuit of, for materialism, we can actually begin to reflect on our, the purpose of our life better and then focus on what is going to help mankind so that when we do work, we are working for betterment of the human race, better scientific productivity. So this slowing down can be very um, pro-improvement in our productivity, I would suggest. That's good. Um, how can people find inner strength and peace? What is missing when we feel lonely inside? That is a very deep question. Um, That's what I, we called you here for. <laughs> <laughs> I think a, a short answer would be that um, we are likely to feel lonely if we are trying to achieve some satisfaction through material pursuits and, and nothing else. Right. However, um, let's look at what causes loneliness. Psychologically, we feel lonely when we do not feel supported by people we interact with, so our friends, family, mm. colleagues even. And if we have adequate support from these people that we are interacting with, we are, even if we, are redu we have reduced material resources, we are going to feel supported and comfortable and therefore less lonely. And after all, we observe there are 
several nations that have lower material resources than Britain, the country we live in. And there's so many people who look very happy and are leading supported family life. And on the other hand, even if we have a lot of material wealth, but if we don't have support networks, then we're going to feel more lonely. And we have evidence of it too uh, from the life stories of the so-called rich and famous and uh, with evidence of difficulties with coping there with the distress they go through and it becomes painful example and i think there's another way to look at it too some people try to find peace by relating to nature so uh, a person who's physically unwell gets a serious disease um tries to um, get benefit from laws of nature by, let's say, taking some treatment or, again, seeking some support from their loved ones, and they begin to feel better. In fact, what they've done is uh, received some psychological and physiological, medicinal uh, support from laws of nature. Now, what if we were able to not just seek help from laws of nature, but from the ultimate force that is behind these laws of nature? And what if we were able to, in fact, ask for help from this ultimate force, and this ultimate force, in some way, had a communication system with us and responded to our requests for help? If that is the case, and of course you and I know the other word for this communication, which is worship and prayer mm -hmm. to God, then... There, there are millions of people all over the world who've had the evidence or who have lived their, uh, a response of their request for help and received help from the master of the laws of nature. Now, that is, I, I think, a very strong um, guidance for us as to how we can find inner peace. Mm -hmm. And I would uh, say that um, the religion Islam, which is named peace, and in fact, the only religion that has been named by God, who gives us these religious guidance, it teaches us some very profound um, teachings how to find peace. It has taught the Holy Quran, teaches us to refine our sensibilities so that we seek pleasure in acts of goodness rather than in material wealth or, or products. The Holy Quran has taught us to build sensitivity to the need and the suffering of others. And if we were to learn to derive pleasure from uh, doing acts of goodness to others and seeing their difficulty as ours and helping them, and that gives us the satisfaction rather than this um, energy-consuming, relentless uh, pursuit of more wealth or more material things, then it becomes a lot more doable act of achieving peace and ultimately Islam has taught us that our bondage with God once our act of goodness is recognized it frees us from all other worldly bondages so for those who have experienced this way of achieving peace they tell us that this is the ultimate freedom a great freedom they feel a great sense of strength and confidence they feel in themselves and that gives them the peace um, if you, I mean, in, in this recent days, we've gone through this um, 
sad uh, demise of the Queen. Um, and on the funeral, the Archbishop of Canterbury read some very nice words, I think, and I, I would like to share them with you. Yeah, sure. He said that uh, only those like the Queen who served a higher power first and foremost would be remembered. And those whose only God was their own fragile ego would mm. soon be forgotten. I think that's a nice way to sum up how we find peace. That's great, yeah. But then, of course, um, you know, in, in this uh, the society we live in, um, the question, you know, people say is, is, is religion important? Is it not good enough just to be spiritual? Yes, that is true, and that's a argument that's presented quite frequently. I think it depends on how we define these terms, religion and spirituality. In my mind, these two are inseparable. So you cannot have religion without there being a spiritual side to it, and you, you cannot have spirituality without religious religion guiding you how to attain higher spirituality. Yes, spirituality is essential. In fact, it's if in simple terms, I think people would understand it as ability to relate to their own inner psyche, to relate to nature around them. But even a better way to understand spirituality could be that it is a method of relating to the creator of all this nature that we are trying to relate to. So the the climax. Look at the, the process of evolution that has happened on Earth from microscopic life forms to very complex life forms and a very intelligent being, which is the human being, uh, who's begun to have influence on nature and sometimes not a very helpful influence. But this process of evolution has been guided for a purpose. The biological evolution may seem to come to a stage of climax, but in fact, it carries on. But more importantly, according to the Holy Quran, this biological evolution has now been uh, um, attached at the end with spiritual evolution. And it is this spiritual evolution of our improved relationship with laws of nature and the creator of nature that requires religion. A code or a framework is always necessary to have a benefit from anything. So a traffic code is necessary for us to have safe traffic on the roads. So similarly, religion is the code that brings out the best outcome of from our spiritual endeavor. Our morality without religion would be very subjective, I would think. So it may be depending on people's personal or cultural or political point of views. But morality guided by religion would unify the human race. It would be universal, it would be timeless, it would be commonly owned, like doing goodness or kindness to people in need. That's religious guidance and religious morality in contrast to a localized uh, act of charity. Religion, therefore, has the potential to unify the human race, which we, we unfortunately don't see nowadays. People drift away from religion, and we are seeing more and more divisions on ethnic, religious, nationality basis. So our acts of charity take a higher meaning with religion. It leads to good science even. If people with 
God consciousness follows scientific principles, then they're likely to produce science that benefits mankind rather than just focus on what is better business-wise. So I think in, in many ways, there is, uh, in my mind, it's very clear that spirituality without religion is not likely to work uh, in the same way as religious, religious guided spirituality. Now that that's uh, extremely, I think, useful and very comprehensive answer. Uh, our common question is that if God is the source of peace, then why are not all believers happy, and why are they tested like the rest of us? Yes, but isn't it about following the guidance? You know, again, in the example of our traffic thing, if there are good roads. Uh, well-written highway code, effective road signs, why do we still have accidents? Or why do people still lose their way on the roads? It's basically about following the guidance or not following the guidance. I think this question is uh, similar to a criticism that uh, Richard Dawkins, um, the famous or whatever atheist champion in his book, The God Delusion, Mm -hmm. He raises an objection to religion or to existence of God. He says that religions led to um, dogmatic thinking or extremist thinking. But in fact, that is only when people begin to use religion for political or vested purposes. Mm -hmm. And it's not restricted to that kind of uh, misuse of religion, name of religion, uh, restricted to one religion only. We've seen it in Europe within different factions of Christianity. We've seen it in Southwest Asia uh, in, amongst the different factions of Islam and Southeast Asia, different factions of Buddhism. Uh, the Judaism is divided into more than 70 sections and they are very strongly disagreement with each other. So it, it's not just, it's the phenomena of not following the guidance. Um, societies have occurred, there's historical evidence that societies have been formulated where religion was followed correctly and they created very peaceful, just, fair, tolerant uh, societies. And even members of other faiths lived in those societies very harmoniously. And of course, um, there are scientific studies now that are coming out which show us that the people who follow an organized religion are less likely to develop stress-related mental disorders, or if they do, then they have a better prognosis, they get better quicker and sooner. And I, I think it would be good to share an example from the Ahmadiyya Muslim movement to which we belong, that we have our annual convention in UK and in all countries where the organization is present, and the visitors comment on one thing, how peaceful, how organized we see you guys, even though you have members from different ethnic or cultural backgrounds coming together in thousands. The police chiefs come to our, our gatherings thinking that they're, they're going to have a challenge managing a crowd of 30, 35,000, but they go back saying that we didn't have to do anything even close to when we go to manage a worldly gathering of 1,000 people. Yeah, And, you know, in, in Canada, you would also familiar be familiar with this in Toronto. 
uh, a place where the Ahmadiyya mosque was built and then a lot of Ahmadis started living around it, buying properties there. And the the Canadian being so conscious about their crime rates, um, they noticed that this area has got a strong reduction in crime and what's happening there. And they found out that there's a particular religious community who's living there. And as an honor to this um, reduction of crime, they've named it as Peace Village. So those are mm-hmm. clear evidence of that religion can help and God can help bring peace to the world. Yeah, that's great, uh, uh, Dr. Shakil. It was uh, very uh, interesting and uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, our listeners have benefited out of that. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon uh, and I, I hope we'll, we'll see you again sometimes. Thank you. Thank now, you thank, you. thank you very much, Zakumullah. Now we'll move to another audio clip. Uh, there's a question which was asked by the fourth caliph of uh, the Muslim Association. The question was asked to him that there is dissatisfaction and lack of peace and security among nations, countries and brotherhood with regard to humanity. What is the solution and what is the remedy to this question? So His Holiness answered this question on 30th of April 1995. We'll be listening to it and then we will discuss this topic further. My question is, there is a dissatisfaction and decline among nations, countries, brotherhood, regard to humanity, what is the solution? What is the remedy to this situation? The disorder in the world? Yes, please. Lack of peace and security? Yes, please. Yes. The only solution which can be suggested from the Quranic point of view is the only solution not acceptable to the world. Unfortunately, the only solution lies in return of man to God. And that is the most loathsome thing. Even the religious leaders do not want to return to God. They want to remain stuck to their followers and build their own image as demigods. But uh, safety and peace lies only in return to God. And when you return to God, suddenly you reappear among his creations as a humble servant. Like God descends upon his own humble creation, otherwise the creation of God could have not could not have access to God. How do we know God? He descends upon us. God also is a type of humility and modesty. And it is that humility and modesty which makes him accessible to his creation. So when a servant of God returns to him, then he reappears in the creation as a drop of the creation. But then that drop has the quality of bringing about a revolution around him. This exactly is described in the Holy Quran with reference to the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. He returned to God. All holy people must return to God, but not to stay there. Then he descended back, but this time laden with fruit, laden with beneficence of God and Rama, blessings of God, 
and he made himself available for, to every man. He became the joining thread uh, or bridge between God and man. And in him you found humanity as well as those divine qualities which are not uh, the monopolist characters of God, monopoly characters of God, which can be shared by human beings. So that is the only solution to peace. How many people would like that? They would like to see that in their dead religious leaders and even exaggerate that, but for this to apply to them is almost impossible. Daily we are offered choices of behaving like a godly person or behaving motivated by our selfish interests. How many times do we choose the first option? Very rarely, don't we? So how can peace emerge from disorders? It's not possible. But to soften the message down to a level of acceptability. This is impossible apparently. No man would desire to leave the world and return to God before his death. At death he would return to him willy-nilly anyway. But let's talk of some other formula which is uh, down-to-earth formula which is possible. We can begin to inch our way to God if not return to him in total. And that is something which is possible for every human being and it should be started some, at some time in one's life. Because man has always two options open to him, either moving in the direction of God and godliness or moving away from him. There is nothing stationary. It's only a false notion that one is securely settled and he neither moves on this side nor on the other. Those who are not nearing God, they are always distancing themselves from God. So this is the formula which has been provided to us by the Holy Founder of Islam, that if you cannot return to God in total, if you think you have sinned away the time of your forgiveness, then start moving towards him. So we were listening to the fourth caliph of um, the Muslim Association. Now we will uh, go to the question which we asked on Instagram, that what gives you the most sense of peace? So there are quite many people answered those questions. Some said namaz, some said knowing I can tell Allah, my, you know, he takes away my worries and he sought everything out for me. And the other person said prayer and the remembrance of Allah and his favor. So this is, you know, what peace means to them. Now, as Ahmadi Muslim, today it is our duty to convey the world that the true teachings of Islam and are the ones that have been given to us by the promised Messiah, alayhi peace be upon him. Islam, of course, was not spread by sword, but the excellence of its teaching. Islam is spread during the time only by following the true teaching of Islam, said by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Now, I would thank you for our technical team, uh, Shaquille Sahib and the producer Farah Sahib who organized this show. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you.